Welcome to the Brilliantly Resilient Podcast. What's your train wreck? Everyone has one. The question is, are you going to live there or are you just visiting? Let's check in with Mary Fran and Kristen to learn how to come through not broken, but brilliant. Hey everyone, before we dive into this week's episode, we have a resource that we wanted to tell you about. Transform every week of yours with our brilliance bit that will deliver right to your email inbox. Sign up for it at brilliantlyresilient.net and keep living brilliantly resilient. Hey, everybody, welcome to another episode of the Brilliantly Resilient Show. I'm Kristen Smedley here with my partner in crime, Mary Fran Bontempo, and we are going to light up the airwaves today with another uh, local Philly person that we just love having Philly area in the house here, Jeffrey Abramovitz. Hey, listen, I'm going to, I, it could take me about seven hours to read. And for those of you watching the video, yes, Kristen is embracing 51 and putting on the reading glasses because why get a headache and squint but it could take me until next year to go through the entire amazing bio of jeffrey and we're going to get into all the different pieces and you can see in the show notes all the cool things that he's up to in the world but here's what i wanted to start this off with because if this is not the brilliantly resilient lens and mindset I don't know what is. Jeffrey says, my mission is to make the world a better place by giving those that have made poor choices in the past, understand that those choices will never define them and that life is not about the choices we make, but the lessons we gain from them. I mean, is that brilliant and setting us up to be resilient or what? Jeffrey, thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, thanks for having me. I look forward to this discussion and conversation. And uh, yeah, really excited uh, about sharing a little bit about the work I do and about my story. And I love the, I love Brilliantly Resilient. I just, um, it is, um, some would say in reading my bio and learn, as you'll learn more about me, that it probably defines a lot of who I am today, um, especially that last piece of being resilient. So I look forward to the discussion today. I love it. I love saying, hear you say that you look forward because that is the name of your award-winning show, Looking Forward, which, you know, interestingly enough, I, I feel like so many of us stay in the, in the we always say a brilliant, resilient, the, the coulda, shoulda, woulda, and looking back to, to, you know, oh, all the things that I didn't do right, as opposed to spending the time looking forward. Let's unpack that for a little bit. Yeah, I really don't think that any of us should ever look um, should be looking in the rearview mirror. I think it's a place to go to when we want to learn some lessons and see and, and be reminded and grounded of, of where we've come from and, um, and and then continue to look forward. Like you can't look forward. You can't, uh, you can't move forward if you're always looking back. So you really need to focus on what's next and, and how do I pick up the pieces and move forward and, and change my life and, and do good in the world or, or whatever your journey or wherever life takes you. So, um, yeah, I love the radio show. It's um, called Looking Forward. It's in Philly. We're in our going in our fifth year. And it's been really fun for me because my opportunity to get people to focus on what lies ahead and um, and the lessons that they've learned through life. So it's pretty fun. I think that um, sometimes exactly that keeps people from moving ahead. You you've made these mistakes. You've made these errors in judgment. I don't know if you know much about my story, but my son uh, is in, he's very well now, very healthy, but he's in recovery from heroin addiction. And when he decided that it was time to get well, it, it was tough. I mean, people think that, oh, they're sober now. Well, that's the very beginning 
of that, as you call it, that re-entry. When you've, you know, you've paid for your mistakes, you've done your time, your whatever, you don't just suddenly get everything back. It's a huge undertaking to rebuild and re-enter. And you found that out on a on a in a personal way. Yeah, I guess your audience should know where I come from and where I've been so that they can get a better understanding. But I was a lawyer in Philadelphia for a little over 20 years, and I practiced in both the federal and state courts as well as in New Jersey. And before the U.S. Supreme Court, uh, I had pretty much everything that a successful lawyer would want, a house and beautiful family and just uh, cars and everything that monetarily um, would lead you to believe you're successful. And then um, it was on March 12th of 2012 that I stood in front of a jury for the first, in front of a judge for the first time in my life, not as a lawyer, but as a defendant. And I accepted responsibility for a financial crime that uh, landed me a five-year sentence in a federal prison. And they say often that the two most important days of your life are the day you're born. And often people say the day you die. And I would say the second most important day of your life is the day you figure out why you were born. And for me, that happened the second that the judge's gavel struck wood. And I knew that there was more to this. Number one, I needed to understand what choices I had made. So I, um, Mary, you, you, you mentioned the word um, uh, mistakes. So I'm not a big fan. I think that um, we all make choices in life and sometimes they're not the best choices mm -hmm. and they land you and doing touching that that hot kettle a little bit too often, or um, they, they don't often land everyone in prison, but they're choices that we make. And that's how we learn in life. We're human. And we learn by doing things not so well and then doing them better the next time. And then the next time even better. So I think that in life we make choices and uh, the choices I made were obviously not so wise and landed me in prison. Um, but the lessons that I learned from them were invaluable. And I remember my first experience was sitting in, well, two, two men coming up from behind me and taking off my belt and my wedding band and my wallet and uh, my tie and my shoelaces, and then escorting me into a, a holding cell in the back of the courtroom. And I remember being escorted into the prison, which is attached in Philadelphia to the, to the courtroom, and sitting there butt naked for three hours. And I was stripped of everything at that moment. At that moment, the only thing I knew was my new identity was 617-64066. Like mm. that was my number, that was who I was defined as. And I, I also remember that I needed to understand why this happened to me so it never happened again. But more importantly, there was something else going on. Like I needed to see the bigger picture. Like why was this happening to me? What was what was I destined to become? And, and where was I gonna go? And it came down to resiliency. It came down to understanding that I needed to bounce back really methodically and think about what I was learning from it all. And there's a great book by David Brooks, a New York Times columnist called The Second Mountain. And he, he talks about in his book how you, you go through life and you climb this mountain and you get successful and you get a family and all the things that you might want. And then something in life sends you back down the mountain. And you might not fall as far as I have into a federal prison, but you might fall pretty far. And how do you pick up the pieces? And life is all about what you do on the second climb. Like, what do I do on the second climb? What are all the lessons I've learned from the first one that's going to make me better and stronger and all those things that will give me happiness, which is really what it comes down to. So, um, yeah, so I came home. Um, it was a little over seven years ago from prison. And 
I lived in, um, I came home homeless. I didn't live uh, with family or friends. I really needed to figure this out. So I lived in a shelter in North Philadelphia and had um, $22 to my name. So I, I know what it's like to live in a shelter and to be homeless. And my first job was teaching GED math at Broad and Lehigh at Community Learning Center, which is now beyond literacy. And understanding the challenges that men and women that are black and brown and people that are in poverty and suffering from addictions, um, getting to see firsthand uh, what those challenges are and, and how maybe I could help guide some people to the same place that I was looking for, or that, that place of just success and being happy. Wow. So so take me back for a second here to the, the day that you're you're sitting there, everything is taken away from you, and you say to yourself, okay, if it was me, I'd be like, what the hell? <laughs> are you kidding me? How is this? You immediately go to, okay, what am I supposed to learn from this? Did you have a history of, of, of second climbs where you're like, okay, I'm going to get right back <laughs> no, out there? No. Or no, how no. does that, where does that come from? No, I had never been in prison before, other than as a lawyer. Um, I had never been in prison before. And I think, uh, and I'm not really sure where it came from, except something deep inside me said that there was, uh, there was something here that I needed to learn for myself and I needed to figure out and that there was meaning to all of this. Just like when you make choices, there's always meaning behind them. There's a lesson there. And I needed to figure out what that meaning was. Like, where was I destined to go or to head? What was it going to do? A 50-year-old, a 55-year-old lawyer, what was he going to do when he came back without a license, able to practice? And, you know, was I going to work in a factory or what was my life going to be like? I knew there, there was more to that. I knew that there was something. And, and it hit me really quickly because... Um, there was this unbelievable sense when I was sentenced of relief. And I know it sounds horrible, but there was this tremendous relief that I could go on to the next chapter of my life. Like I was closing one book and opening up another, and I could define what that story was going to be. I could write it. I could dictate exactly what what choices I was going to make and and do and where I was going to land. I could write that story again but I didn't have to be to be living in the past. I, I could, I needed to look forward. And that was the show that was, you know, that was been my mantra all along. Men and women that are just as involved, just like addiction, about 85% of the 44,000 challenges and barriers that stand in front of them exist all of their life. And it's, it, they never go away. You just have to understand how to deal with them and how to react to them and, and how to use them to your advantage. And unfortunately, many people that have addiction issues or have a criminal background, um, they just uh, they just need guidance. They need to be pointed in the right direction. Someone showing them, though, you need to take baby steps. And, and I really did. Like when I came home, I knew I was not going to hit this out of the park in one home run with a job and a career. It took me seven years to really work up and do the things. And I started at a job that was $7 an hour teaching GED math. Now I'm homeless. I can't afford clothes. I had to borrow a tie for my first interview. I I could not. Um, I was making seven dollars an hour for the first um, for the first year that I I was working um, until I and then I moved pretty quickly into a director role and other things happened after that. But it's uh it was very methodical. I knew I needed to learn everything 
as I moved up the ladder. And, and I did. I needed to take the trash out. I needed to clean the floors. I needed to do all those things to understand how an organization functioned, what motivated people, what kept students in my classroom, all of those things. And that's kind of the path that I took. You know, everything about your story is resonating with me. Um, and I've said I've said this before. One of the very first things that my son did when he came home, when he finally started to get so, you know, was sober, but really started to rebuild his life. One of the very first things that kind of flipped the switch for him and for me that I realized is when he went out and bought himself his own personal products, his own Q-tips, his own, you know, deodorant. The, the very simplest thing, this idea that you um, talked about these baby steps, that you just go one step at a time. And people think that when you're at your base level, that that's a terrible place to be. But there is something very freeing about that because you go, okay, I am nothing like what I was before. Now I get to rebuild with the stuff that's really important. And you clearly settled in that space. So I not only settled in it, I embraced it. Like I did things that um, like your friend Keith Baldwin did when he's book of year of first, I did things I had never done before. Like I learned how to operate a tractor trailer. And when I was in prison, I taught a CDL class. Now I had never been in the cab of a tractor trailer in my entire life. I was a lawyer. I grew up in a middle-class family. I had never been in a tractor trailer, but I knew that the men that I was living with could, they, they knew how to drive a truck just fine. They just weren't, they couldn't pass the test. They needed the math and reading skills to pass the test. So it kept hitting me over and over again. Like, how could I be of service? How could I help people figure out to get into that career and, and what their, their next steps were going to be? So, um, yeah, I, I embraced every part of it. And I really, I, that's where I really learned. And I don't know, and I say this often too, when people ask me, well, five years is a long time. And, and it's truthful, it is a long time. But I also don't know I would have appreciated uh, all the lessons that I got had I not had I been down away for a week or a month or mm -hmm. a year. I think it took me to really lose everything and literally everything. My family, um, my, I got divorced while I was away. I have a wonderful daughter who stayed with me, who's just a rock star. But wow. all of those kind of life challenges, um, you know, I don't know that I would have been able to, um, I would have learned those lessons, at least not to this way, this capacity. Uh, until I, unless I was away that long and boy, did I learn some lessons. So it's been, it, it's been a crazy journey for me. Um, coming home, I was able to navigate my way back and started doing reentry work with men and women that have come home from prison and jail around Philadelphia and uh, got very active in the Philadelphia reentry coalition, which I now chair. And then I started getting funny calls um, the attorney general's office called and said, can you chair the um, em employment subcommittee for the Pennsylvania Reentry Council. And then the governor called and put me on the Pennsylvania Workforce Development Board. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden I started doing reentry programming at a larger level. And then uh, five years ago, I was uh, received a call from Jeb's Human Services. So Jeb's operates our career link in Suburban Station in Philadelphia. Mm -hmm. It's been around 80 years, a few hundred million dollar nonprofit. And they said, Jeff, we want to bring you on because we're missing something. We don't, we don't see what we need to see when it comes to people that are justice involved. And we want you on at the highest level at Jeb's. I came on as an executive director of the reentry programs at Jeb's. And um, just recently left, but I learned so much during that period of time. But the same day I got um, the, the selection by Jeb's, I received a call from the Coalition on Adult Education in Washington, COAP, Coalition on Adult Basic Education. 
And they say, Jeff, can you start the prison literacy commission across the country? And I was like, yeah, bring it on. And all of a sudden, I'm now doing work across the country, um, educating people on justice and education and the importance of getting people smarter and into jobs. And then um, I recently, uh, two years ago, was selected as secretary of the board of directors. And now my work um, in the last two years has also been focused nationally through the U.S. Department of Education. So the U.S. Department of Education brought me on as a subject matter expert in correctional and reentry education. And I moderate and oversee their portfolio called LINCS, which is the communities of practice for education in our country. And um, yeah, it's kind of surreal for me. I like pinch myself sometimes because I'm like, sure, seriously? Um, I'm, I'm just at tables now where I never thought I would be um, or could be. But the truth is that I'm at these tables because that's a place where I can effectuate change. That's a place where I can I can sit there and say, you know, you don't you don't get it. And what people need when they come home is they need some money for transportation and they need some clothing. We need to get them food and we need to think about, you know, getting them back into school and how we can get them smarter, giving them a certification for a program, whether it's welding or CDL or whatever it is. And um, really wearing a very different pair of glasses today than I've ever worn before. So it's it's been a really humbling ride. And I I'm in a position now recently, I am in my fourth week in my new job. So I took a job as the um, chief executive officer of the PD Green program. So PD Green program is a national program that does educational support for men and women inside of correctional and correctional facilities across the country. And we use college students across the country to help our um, men and women that are justice involved um, get smarter. And they go into the prisons and jails and they help them get their high school diploma or bridge to college or um, get into a certification program. And it's just a remarkable organization. And I'm so grateful to be leading it. But I lead it here, too, with the same pair of eyes, thinking about what was it like for me when I was incarcerated and when I was tutoring inside and when I was teaching classes. And I taught over 60 classes while I was away. And what did I what were the things that I learned most when I was away and how could I be using it now to build this uh, ever growing organization? So it's been wow. kind of fun. Wow. You know, you said you referred earlier to your, your daughter that has stuck by you as a rock star. I, I can see why she is is uh, sticking by you and probably completely in awe of watching you not just bounce back, but use that all that happened to make so much good in the world to impact so many people now. Yeah. So I, I mean, you mentioned your son and I just want to tell a quick story because I think this really sums it up. When you go to prison or jail, just as when you're addicted to a substance, um, it's not just you that goes on that journey. It's your entire family that's on mm -hmm. the journey and they're with you. But a few, a uh, few years ago, I just gotten done supervised release from the government. My probation was over and I was all done. And my daughter for Father's Day got me in the car and she'd say, Dad, get in the car. And I'm like, um, I don't know, is this a punishment? I don't know where I'm going. And she said, get in the car. And I got in the car and we drove back to um, where we used to live. And we live right behind the uh, her high school. And we parked around the high school parking lot and she said, get out. And I'm like, seriously, I you said this wasn't a punishment. She said, get out of the car. And I got out of the car. 
And she went around to the trunk and she got out her cap and gown and the awards she had gotten at her high school graduation. And we went out into the 50 yard line and we took some pictures and we talked about graduation and how wonderful it was. And, and we talked about our journeys, um, the journey that she had um, while I was away and the journey that I had. And, and we really just sat all afternoon there and talked. Now, I can't say that being at her actual graduation wouldn't have been awesome, but that day to me mm -hmm. was priceless. And I think oftentimes we we think that the past is the past and and we we're, we encourage each other not to look back, but that's an instance where the rear view mirror was pretty clear. Like we were all both looking in the rear view mirror, but with that, we needed to do that in order to move forward and to look at what was ahead. And, you know, I encourage people when they go through these challenges, you know, we can't turn the clock, the hands of our clock back. It's just not possible to do unless you're back to the future, but it's not possible to do. And one of the things you can do is you can look at ways that you can relive them and that you can actually make amends or you can kind of um, put the pieces back together again. And, and fortunately, I've been blessed and not only with the fact that I put my own life back together and with a wonderful partner now and, and we, um, we're, we're living life like I never imagined. I also have the ability to change thousands of lives every day, if not millions around the country. I do a lot of work in Washington on adult education and making sure people understand the importance of it from funding on Capitol Hill to legislation that comes down to all the way down to our state and, and our city and making sure it's a priority for how we work with men and women that are coming home. We spend on average of twelve to $15,000 for a K to 12 student. We spent under $500 per student for adults. And, you know, it just doesn't make a lot of sense when you look at our the, the poverty situation that our country currently finds themselves in and how we can get people back to work. Right now, we have more jobs in our country than we have people to fill them. And that's not going to change simply because we're not doing enough to get people smarter and giving them the skill sets to succeed. You know, you talked over and over, you've mentioned the word education many, many, many times in, in this conversation. And I think one of the challenges for society in general is we think of educating students, children, young people. We don't recognize, and when we talk about, when we talk about continuing education for adults, a lot of times it's a pottery class at the local Y, you know, but there is a whole segment of the population that was underserved as children had some made some choices, ended up in situations, but now are hungry for that education and 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 now are ripe for it. And I think there's a, an element of, uh, again, you talk about, we talk about the brilliantly resilient lens, looking at through things through that lens. And, and you talked about looking at things through a certain lens. We have to stop putting people into these categories where, okay, you're a kid, so this is where your education is. We have to recognize that education not only can be a lifelong thing, but often is the lifeline for people in that situation who didn't receive the education, weren't prepared to accept it at a certain point in life, but now need that to move forward and to look forward to, to, to build a life for themselves. So I want to take it a step further because I was asked recently by our a past uh, U.S. Secretary of Education, like what my impact is. And I know him pretty well. It's Assistant Secretary Scott Stump. He's no longer in the position. But he asked me, Jeff, what's your impact? You know, how do you? And I said, look, I really can't tell you that. And he's like, well, I know you keep data. I know your numbers are good. 
like, what's your real impact? And I'm like, and I said to him really frankly, that my impact is not with the individual that I work directly with. Like if I help somebody get a high school diploma or get into college, that's wonderful. But the bigger picture is their five-year-old who goes to school with a full belly, who wears a good pair of sneakers and a warm jacket, who sees mom and dad at parent-teacher conference and is proud of mom and dad and wants to go on and not only finish high school, finish grade school or high school, but go on to college and be successful. Um, and that stuff is generational. And we just, we've not figured out a way really how to quantify that. But imagine if we could, because the truth is that although I'm working with those individuals, that, that this is generational change that's happening. And the more we can understand that, uh, I think the better off that we're going to be. Wow. that That's, that is huge. You're right. You do impact the entire family and generation. I, I had this, I'm having this epiphany moment here. And I, I want to take our listeners to this, to this moment. You know, I was going to ask you earlier as you're, cause I'm still, I'm still, this is why I couldn't read your bio because we would have been here for seven hours. Cause I couldn't <laughs> be able to get it all out, all that you've done. Now I want listeners to come back to that moment where you're sitting there with nothing and you made the choice to, to learn everything you could out of the moment and, and make an impact. And I was going to ask you earlier, were you feeling any shame? Because shame blocks us so much. But what I'm realizing is you took responsibility. I work with the blind community. As I mentioned, I have two blind sons. And we talk about taking responsibility instead of the blaming systems and blaming situations and all that. And what I'm, what I'm hearing you teach me here is that you took responsibility for your choice and where you were going to go with it. And it, it seems to me that that dropped the shame or didn't give shame any real estate in your mind. And you were able to move forward. Am I, am I saying that right? So maybe, yes, you're saying it very right. But I think maybe what happened was that when the judge's gavel struck wood and I left the courtroom that was packed with news media and family that it couldn't get any more shameful than that. And when I was back in the holding cell, um, I I needed to accept responsibility. That was the very first thing that had to happen. I needed to I needed to accept responsibility so much so that even today, um, self responsibility is a core principle that I live by every day. I can't walk down the street by a homeless person and not engage them. And engaging them isn't giving them money. Engaging them is saying, how are you doing? Um, is there something, I, some way I can help you? Um, just have a nice day. Um, I take self-responsibility for everything that goes on in my life. And too often in our justice setting, in our addiction settings, um, we don't take that responsibility. And, and the bottom line is no one else forced us to do it. I mean, these are the choices we made. We should accept them. We should learn from them. And and understand that it's okay. There, we have to bring humanity back into our system, where mm-hmm. we just understand it's okay to make bad choices. It's okay, you know, to do things and, and them not work out so well. But that self responsibility piece has got to be the very first thing that you mm-hmm. accept. And if you can't do that, and I often hear people come home, well, I shouldn't have gotten two years, or it wasn't my drugs, or I should, you know, it was all his fault, or they got me in trouble, or if I only had money. And the reality is you can excuse it away, but I promised myself when this all started that no matter what flowed from my actions, that I was going to accept that responsibility. And should I have gotten five years? No, I think there a lot of people get do a lot worse than I did and, and get a lot less. 
But the truth is that I opened that door. I opened that door and I needed to accept responsibility for everything that came in that door afterwards. And no matter what happens to you, you know, if you're in the justice system and don't get me wrong, there are people behind bars, you know, 2% of all the 1.2 million people or, or 2.1 million people incarcerated get exonerated. So think about that. 2% of 2.1 million people are totally exonerated. They did not do the crime. That means 20,000 people today sit behind our prisons and jails in those walls and did nothing wrong. I get that part of it. But if you um, if you open the door and, and you recognize that you made those choices, then you need to accept them. And that self-responsibility mm -hmm. is probably one of the first keys to all that. Well, and and I think also there's there's should be an awareness of the fact that when you do make certain choices, you you lose your ability to control the situation because you give that, you know, you give there are societal norms, there are laws, there are things like that. So that self-responsibility piece is so important. But I think another way that, that people could look at it is, hey, I'm giving away my power here. When I make these decisions that put me in a situation that somebody else gets to say, well, you're going to jail now. You know, I think that's a, that's a way that that people can look at it, that as you said at the very beginning, they don't see it as a mistake. They recognize it as a choice that they made. And if you see it as giving away part of yourself to to when you when you put yourself in that space where other people get to decide your future, that might be an impediment to making better choices or to making poor choices and making better ones in the future. Yeah, I think I so you raised a really good point, but I think power is all relative. There's a justice power our justice system has, our prosecutors have, and there's a there's a justice piece of power, but there's an internal power that we all have. And and that's something that that you control. So yeah, I could have sat back and as Kristen said, I could have sat back and said, All right, let's do my time, get out, or go do whatever I can and make some money. But um, there's an internal power that you have that you control the ball now. And for the longest time, I guess that relief was part of other people controlled the ball. They controlled mm -hmm. what was going to happen to me, where I was going to be, where I was going to go. And I went to a really pretty stiff prison um, by prison terms. It was just below a supermax prison and eventually made my way to a, um, a, a lighter uh, prison afterwards. But um, these are choices that, that um, you know, that I made and that kind of... Um, that I did, I, I just accepted that reality that that's the way it was. Um, but I controlled the ball. I controlled my destiny. And there's something truly invigorating about that when you control your destiny and you can decide how you what you want to deal do with it. And little things like I had a tremendous fear of heights. And when I came home, I said, you know what, let's do it. And I started walking across the Ben Franklin Bridge <laughs> every other day. Wow. Just to get over the fear of heights. That's taking um, it on. <laughs> but but that you talk about power, you talk about that's an internal power of making change. And now I have external power. I'm able to sit at tables where I can say, we need to change this because it's just not right. I was in Albuquerque, New Mexico. I speak a lot nationally. And uh, I was at Albuquerque, New Mexico recently. And I walked into the ballroom there. And before people came into the room, I had everyone, I had about half the tables in the room, 1,800 people there. I had them the I had them turn the chairs around before they got into the room. All the staff turned the chairs around. And every, people came into the room. They um, The chairs were facing the back of the hall, the back of the lectern. So they all turned the chairs around. And by the time the hall was filled up, everyone was now seated and everyone was now facing the front of the stage. 
And it was a social exercise, but it was really poignant because it I, I mentioned to them that um, I turned the chairs around intentionally and they saw that something wasn't right. And they took the simplest action by turning the chair around. And the whole conference was, the theme of the conference was turn the ship around. Um, it was down in Tampa, Florida, or it was in New Mexico, it was turn the ship around. It was all about pirates or whatever. But the point was that we saw something wasn't right and they did something about it. And too often we see something's not right and we just don't do anything about it. And we're the first ones to criticize it and to speak up about it. But it's it's simple if you can just take one little step and just turn the chair around. So next time you see something that just doesn't make sense or isn't right, or that homeless person that's sitting out on the corner and you know you can get them a cup of coffee or you can just acknowledge their existence, um, think about turning the chair around, just do, doing something small. And it can really change people's life forever. So you mentioned um, Keith Baldwin. So Keith was on my radio show recently and I had told Keith a story um, about a year ago. And I said, Keith, I have a habit that I do now. And you know, I whenever I'm in Wawa or a food a convenience store, I always pay for the people behind me. And my goal is to pay for them before they can recognize someone did that for them. And the goal is that, and the hope is that they recognize how good it feels when somebody pays for you to do it for somebody else. And Keith was on my show and he said, you know, I've never told you this. He said, but ever since you've told me that story, every time I go into a convenience store, I always pay for the person behind me. And I'm like, ah, <laughs> at least one person got it. Um, <laughs> but the truth is that it is that responsibility of just doing an unsolicited act of kindness for somebody that can go really a long way. So you do that, though, without the expectation. Kristen and I talk a lot about not being married to outcomes. It's an, it's there comes a point at which you you do those things, hoping and, and doing them with your good intent. But beyond that, I think a lot of people don't do things because, well, you know, what if the money doesn't get where I want it to go or what if that doesn't. So I think that idea of just put that act out there, one small action can be the beginning of that step of change for you or for someone else. And, and that's where everything starts with these baby steps. Your $7 an hour job. Yeah, I think it really is looking at it just differently. I do it for myself. I don't do it for anybody else. So that person may benefit behind me from the coffee or whatever they're going to get. But the truth is, it just makes me feel good. And if people looked at it as, does it doesn't make you feel good? Does it, you know, are you putting a smile on your face? Um, then the outcomes mean a little bit less um, mm. because you know what? Uh, I don't really need to know how many people are impacted by it. I know that I'm doing the right thing and I go to sleep feeling good about it. And that for me is it's more than enough. Fantastic. Hey, Jeff, before we get into the rapid fire reset, where can folks, where can folks find you and, and know all of the nine gajillion things that I don't know how I love in your bio, it said something about in his downtime, Jeff likes to sleep. <laughs> <laughs> that was my thing. <laughs> but yeah. where can folks find you? <laughs> yeah. So there's two places you can find me. One is I do have a website. It's jeffrey-abramowitz.com. So um, you can get, you can connect with me on there. And I do have a bunch of resources for re entry and justice on there. And the other place you can get me is here at PD Green. So the PD Green program, it's P-E-T-E-Y-G-R-E-E-N-E 
pdgreenorganization.org. And the PD Green organization or PD Green program is a wonderful program. I'm looking forward to um, seeing it grow across the country. And hopefully we'll put tutors in every prison and jail um, from one side of the country to the next. Fantastic. Fantastic. So we'd like to end with a little fun thing that we give people a little insight into the the minds of our guests and help them to figure out how to reset real quickly. So three quick questions to help our our audience and you reset a little bit. What is your go-to song that gets you like just juiced and jazzed every time? Do you have a go-to? Yeah, um, Lovely Day. Um, oh, I, I love that one. I woke up, wake up to that song every day because every day is, it is what you make it. And for me, it'll be a lovely day, so... Oh, I like Very it. Good. Of course, right now I have the song Turn the Car Around in my head because you kept saying turn the chair around. <laughs> 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 Lovely day's a better one, though. I like that. That's awesome. And when when did you at any point uh, a moment where you just legit laughed out loud, laughed so hard you were crying anything come to mind that was just so funny, silly, goofy? Oh my gosh. So I laugh all the time. So there's not, there's very, there's very little that I, 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 I love laughter with my staff and, and personally at home. Um, so that's a really challenging question. Um, something that happened that I laughed really, really hard at. Um, wow. You guys are testing me. A silly video, a silly, I mean, you know, it's funny. I, I have a bunch of grandkids and my son will post goofy things about my, my grandson, Luca. And last night it was what, what Luca lost today, his socks before we left the house, his shoes in the car when we were in said car. And the last one was, has anybody seen the cheese stick I was just eating? Uh, <laughs> so my daughter and I went to the Phillies game last year and they were giving out these beautiful Phillies um, World Series rings, the replica rings. And they're really heavy and they're, mm -hmm. and, um, and she was embarrassed by wearing it. And I said, I'll gladly wear yours. So I, I wore her ring and embarrassed her for the game. Game and afterwards but um after the game um we had gone um we had gone to dinner and i i found it she took a box she had le leftovers and i put the ring inside the leftovers and now for the last year or so it's been this exchange back and forth of where we can hide it in the other person's house so the other day um they were over for dinner and she left and it, it had to be it was right in my living room and it was right on our on a, a candle she had put the ring and it had been there for weeks and i did not no notice it was right under my nose and i'm like oh my god i can't believe you did that and yeah so she she got me oh that's fun that's an i ongoing, love that an ongoing giggle that's always yes. a good thing that's and a what's good our one. last one? Our last one is your rock star moment. You've had many rock star moments. And I, I dare to, I'm going to dare you to pick out one rock star moment that you thought this is it. This is either where I belong. This is the best thing. This is great. So it was, it was actually a situation that happened. Um, I was down on Market Street and I was, we were, I was with my partner, Lisa, we were walking on a Saturday night and we just gotten done dinner and I gave, um, I was walking by a homeless person and I went to give him my meal that I had left over. And he said, no, you know, it's Saturday night. I, I don't need that. And I said, well, what do you need? And he said, I need a guitar. And I'm like, a guitar. He said, yeah. He said, I've lived in a homeless shelter and I made money on the street playing my guitar, but somebody stole it from the shelter recently. So I don't usually do this. I said, here's my card. Call me. I'll see what I can do. So, um, so Monday um, he called me and 
he said, um, Mr. A, can you help me? And I was like, where are you? He says, I'm down 15 in the market. So I walked over and we started talking. And it turns out that he was um, used to be a sous chef um, in a big restaurant in Philadelphia and got into drugs, had no family, put himself in and lost everything, including um, his home and his knives and all his culinary, mm. all, all the stuff that he had. So um, I went back and put a, a feed up, um, which I never do, uh, asking anything for anybody. And I asked for a guitar. And within an hour, I have a very large social media presence. I have like 20 something thousand people on LinkedIn and, and Facebook. And I put a feed up and said, I need a guitar for a friend. And, um, and we got a guitar and an amp and picks and all the things you could use and um, was able to catch up with him later that day. And it was as if Christmas had oh. just come in the middle of the summer. Um, and to me, that was the ultimate because um, number one, I had the resources to help somebody and was able to not only help him with the guitar, we earned it, getting him a job and getting a place to get um, to get a meal and to get some shelter. So yeah, I think for me, that was it. I think it was that that moment I said, God, I, I, I could do anything. So <laughs> and there, and that was it. You know, you wouldn't something you certainly wouldn't think of that just not only made somebody else's uh, day and life, but lit yours up. Jeffrey, thank you so much for joining us. This has been an incredible conversation and I think a really eye opening one that people um, need to hear more about. So thank you. Well, you're welcome and keep uh, keep going forward with Brilliantly Resilient. And I'd love to have both of you on my show at some point in time. That'd be wonderful. Let's hear about the work you guys are doing. Yeah, that's awesome. That'll be awesome. Well, thank you so much, Jeff, for sharing your story, giving me so many uh, uh, brilliant moments during this. I don't know how we're going to choose the brilliance bit that we're going to have to choose one thing that that's our one of our most popular things here at Brilliantly Resilient. And you can get the brilliance bit sent right to your email inbox if you go to brilliantlyresilient.net. Blink three times and a magic window appears. You drop your email in. Your email is safe. We don't know how to share it with other people. So <laughs> it is perfectly dumb? safe. And a bit of brilliance will be delivered to your inbox every week in a less than one minute read. Thanks for joining us. See you all next time. Thanks for tuning in to the Brilliantly Resilient Podcast. Join our Facebook group and follow us on YouTube to be inspired with tools to reset, rise, and reveal your brilliance.